Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Government versus the robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. I'm Jonathan Tanner, and this week I'm going to be talking to Roland Manthorpe. Roland is a technology correspondent at Sky News. We're going to be talking about how technology journalism has evolved, looking at Huawei and deep fakes, and asking what the biggest developments we can expect in technology and politics are in 2019. Hi, I'm Roland. I'm technology correspondent at Sky News. I used to be senior editor at Wired. Roland, it's great to have you here. This is the first podcast we've ever recorded in my home of South London. So we're both sat in Peckham. Um, there is a six-month-old baby upstairs above us. Uh, not my baby, I hasten to add. But if anybody hears any crying in the background, it's not uh, our production assistant. It's just the fact that we're recording in Peckham. So it's great to have you here today. Um, how long have you been at Sky now? Four months, I think. Yeah, it feels both like a really long time and a really, really short time. Are you enjoying being on the TV? Yes, sometimes. Sometimes it's just, it's so, it's honestly exhilarating. That is the word. Sometimes it's so terrifying. But I say when I, because I actually, when, when you do live events and you're there with a TV camera, so I did the Google walkout and the Uber protests and you just think, this is incredible. I wouldn't want to be covering this in any other way than with a TV camera because that's how you can convey what the event is about. In the truest form, rather than say, you know, taking some notes, going back to office, writing it up. Um, and then other times it's just so confusing and difficult and you can't believe how hard it is to make TV. It's so sort of weird and artificial as well. I mean, all, all these forms are artificial, but you notice it more when you're getting used to it. So, um, yeah, I'm sort of slowly acclimatising, I, I think. And before you came to Sky, you were writing for Wired magazine and were writing on technology issues for a good two or three years, probably. Can you tell me when in your life the penny dropped that tech was going to be this thing that you wanted to spend time really kind of getting underneath? Yeah, good question. I think, yeah, definitely with tech, everyone thinks it happened earlier than it really did. You know, like everyone always thinks they were into Google in like the late 90s. No, they, they weren't. They were, they were into it in mid, the mid-2000s, maybe. Um, but I think it was around like 2010 or 2011. I just, I, you know what, I actually really got the startup bug. And I really believed in the things that people were saying around that time about startups and changing the world and doing things differently. And it just suddenly struck me like, wow, this is for real. 
And then I started writing a lot more about it and hanging out around startups and writing about tech in a quite a kind of positive way. And before that, I had a background in policy and I studied history and politics. And around, I guess, like 2014, it was like the two halves of my background just clicked. Because it was like, wow, tech is suddenly getting really political. And I felt like I saw that quite early on. And then at Wired, I set up Wired's first ever sort of tech and politics um, vertical. And I launched a tech and politics uh, podcast and did loads and loads of stuff and made Wired a lot more political. And it felt like, all right, yeah, I can, this is something I, I don't, I'm not technical, but I know politics maybe better than the tech people. I know tech better than the politics people. And also having been on that journey as well with tech, you know, like I, uh, there's a part of me which is still so optimistic about it all or wishes that I could be optimistic. And yeah, so I've, I've seen the, the move from crazy optimism to uh, extreme pessimism and watched that as it's changed. And do you feel vindicated in feeling that tech was going to get political? Uh, and by extension, kind of how do your colleagues at Sky feel about having a tech correspondent? I think you're the first. Uh, the second, the second. I think they're, they're probably confused. Uh, and that's, that's because actually tech journalism is quite young and tech, a tech correspondent is quite an, a new thing, really. So let's like, so say, um, unusually for me, I don't have any competitors at ITV or Channel 4. They don't have tech correspondents. And obviously I, I have like a view of what the role should be, but there are lots of different ways to, um, to cover tech. And yeah, and there's, there aren't that many established role models out there to look to, especially not on the on the TV side. But yeah, and, and mostly my my idea of how it should be is something a bit closer to economics correspondent. You know, because the economics correspondent, what they're really telling you is about the hidden levers that move the world. And tech, people don't know, but tech is as important as economics right now. Is and it's only going to get more important. And so yeah, that's that's what I want to get across to people. And yeah, of course, I feel massively vindicated. I said it. I said it all along and it totally turned out to be true. While you're basking in that glory, uh, I wanted to ask about whether you think the fact that, and and hopefully, maybe it seems obvious, presumably the fact that Sky have decided they want a tech correspondent is a sign that people and the public are starting to realise that these are issues that matter and deserve their own focus? I hope so. That would be nice, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, I I don't really know. Although, so the the first thing that happened when when I spoke to Sky... They kind of, they approached me and I had one of those weird coffees, you know, where you're, because you're still working at your current job and you you think, oh, well, I'll, I'll go along to see what this might be like. And we talked about it. And the first thing I said was, I don't really, I don't want to do gadgets. And they were like, great, because we don't want gadgets either. And I feel like that, that sort of set the tone in the way, because basically for, at the start, tech journalism was gadgets. And then it became about obsessing about how big companies were and how they worked about startups. And now I feel like we're sort of in a more mature phase. I mean, seriously, Actually, the idea of holding tech companies to account honestly feels like it's not that old. I mean, I don't want to insult any of the brilliant tech journalists who always did this, but it feels like people have only really got onto that in the last few years and about getting what's really going on out there. And yeah, I mean, that's, it's, really, it's really exciting to be, to be part of that. Where do you think we are on the um, kind of collision course between technology and politics? So I feel like government versus the robots um, and the people that listen to it regularly... 
have recognised that tech's getting increasingly political and it's shaping the political environment. But I don't think that idea has gone mainstream. And I certainly don't think tech's had an effect on how people are thinking about which political party they might support. So on the kind of journey where tech and politics merge, let's assume they're going to merge more and more. Where on that journey do you think we are? Well, this is possibly slightly self-serving, but I think we're just at the beginning. It really is day one in all this because I think that we're at the start of something that's as significant as the Industrial Revolution or the, the sort of the financial revolution that made money part of the economy in the um, 17th century. So tech is going to massively carry on changing politics, but it won't necessarily change politics in this narrow way that we all understand. It's like, it's, it's like you know, in the, the midterms in the US, everyone sort of breathed this sigh of relief that, um, that it, it, went, it came off successfully. But... It's like, well, the change already, has already happened and it's still happening in, in so many different ways. And it's also that tech is getting into other parts of the economy and other parts of society and changing, for instance, like retail. The high street is really, really, really dying. And tech is part of that. It's not, it's not the full story, but it's a really big part of that. I mean, and if you think of a life without sort of shops on the high street, now that, that is politically incredibly important. And it's politically important, not just for elections, but for people's lives. And the same with, you know, driverless cars. Imagine if we actually did get driverless cars and the sort of waves of unemployment that might cause. And also the, the angry polit- the politics that you might get about it. So, yeah, I feel like we're really just the beginning, but also that we don't understand how it's going to change politics. Because sometimes when you just look at the political world, yeah, it still seems like the same, except there's more tweeting and the, the Facebook ads are really dark but it's like once this change takes hold and 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 it's getting into geopolitics as well right like the whole um huawei china us trade war cyber is is integral to that but we don't understand how it's going to change it because yeah just like with those previous revolutions people didn't understand either so there you have it. If you've ever wanted to feel like a true pioneer, if you've listened, listened to every episode of Government versus the Robots, you are a true pioneer on the tech and politics journey. You heard it here first. Um, and we're going to take a little look forward into 2019 in a moment. But before we do, I wonder, Roland, what you feel the most significant developments in the tech world in 2018 were? Uh, that's actually quite easy uh, because it was Cambridge Analytica. That just opened up, I think, this space of tech and politics and it brought it out into the open. And it's weird, that one, because... In, I feel like in the tech world, when Cambridge Analytica first came out, a lot of people just said, oh, so you mean you didn't know about that? But people didn't. And, it, and it's the connection with Trump as well. And, and in fact, like some of those connections, I sort of wonder about the exact correlation there. But whatever, it's sort of, it's got people understanding that something, something is really going on. And that event, both in its sort of symbolic and actual nature, feels incredibly important. I will look back on that as a landmark. I suppose you could say, what else could you say? GDPR? Nah. No, no, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely Cambridge Analytica. So we're going to play a little game where we take a look forward into 2019. So I was conscious that I don't want you to give away um, all of your best stories that you're hoping will drop throughout 2019, but I did want to get a sense from you of how you think the year is going to play out. So I've got a few different issues jotted down here in my notes, and I'm going to give you the uh, latitude to score them out of 10 in terms of their likely significance and importance in 2019. And I, I, I encourage you to be ballsy in your predictions. Uh, so let's hear some zeros, let's hear some tens in with the uh, average seven. So first off is uh, the health impacts of mobile phones on a scale of 0 to 10. Two. I saw a story that said 
something like one in 10 Chinese people are now suffering from short-sightedness. Is that due to looking at screens? Definitely two. Oh, I, I think it's actually a lot more than one in 10. I thought it was uh, like 50%. Yeah, because myopia is um, something that you can you develop. And yeah, by spending a lot of time reading and st- indoors and staring at screens, yeah, you can just develop it. But although I think that in maybe in the long term, this could be really important because ultimately if people start to think that tech is like smoking that is really going to get through but short term the evidence base just isn't there and the positive advantages just mean that everyone's going to carry on using it all the time I mean, we've already this year we've already had one report out about screen time which is a big fascination of of politicians and it's, it's something people like to talk about and what that report showed was that it depends what you're using that screen time for I don't think it's going to produce those really hard, immediate stories that are going to make a a difference this year. What about, uh, it feels to me like we're not that far away from a video or some form of media that is a fake, but it's such a good fake that everybody gets caught hook, line and sinker. So let's go with like politically significant fake video, 0 to 10. So I'm going to say three, but only because I kind of think this, this already exists, right? Doesn't it? Like, I mean, fake news has already basically won a presidential election, but 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 for some reason, we've we've got all excited about deep fakes and fake videos. Like, yeah, sure, there probably will be one in twenty nineteen, and everyone will go absolutely nuts about it, and there'll be all these stories about ah oh, fake news. It's it's here. It's now. You know, it's it's been here for ages. It's it's real already. And also, I think in the sort of economics of all this, ultimately. Text is way more dominant than people thought. Text is still is still the dominant mode of communication online, and as as any as anyone who does this sort of stuff will know, creating really effective text stuff is easier than creating effective video stuff. So maybe the, on the production side, there won't be that much of it. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it'll happen. I'm sure it'll, I'm sure I'll be covering this story endlessly because, in a way, it's more fascinating perhaps for the media than it is for for everyone out there. I'm going. I'm putting that at seven. And I'm, and I'm putting money on you standing up on Sky News next year, reporting on a story that is generated by a fake, totally fake piece of content. Because I think there's potential for it to be done in a way that the cat gets quite a long way out of the bag before anybody realised it was fake. So I remember a little while ago, there was a great set of fake sketches from Bill Clinton or Tony Blair's memoirs, and it was conversations that were meant to have happened between the two of them in the car, and they were absolutely hilarious. And I think it took a good sort of 12 hours before everybody realised. Now, that's like that's you know just a bit of text. But I think I could see a world in which the same could happen with a piece of content that generated a national news story where people didn't realise it was fake until the cat was well out of the bag. I completely agree. And I'm sure that will happen. But I think in a way this actually relates to a sort of uh, a perspective on tech. Um, there's this great book by this guy, David Edgerton, called The Shock of the Old. And basically, he says that our entire approach to looking at the history of tech is wrong. We tend to focus on innovations, newness, when we should be focusing on use. So one of the things he talks about is that corrugated iron is one of the most important inventions of the last 200 years because it's used on every the roof of every shantytown in the world. So it basically enables shantytowns. But instead, people obsess about VR because it's new. And my sense is that I like to look at the use and what's really going on out there. And actually, yeah, out there... Things are a lot simpler and cruder than really sophisticated deep fakes. So while, and while it's fascinating for us because it's new and the media loves newness and it seems significant, I wonder. But I mean, you're absolutely right. I'm sure I'll be covering it because uh, it is, it's a spectacle. 
and TV and the media. That's what we're good at. Good spectacle. Okay, let's go with uh, bias algorithms. Do you mean the notion of biased algorithms? As in, say, like, the idea that algorithms are racist or actual biased algorithms in the wild, like YouTube. So actual biased algorithms in the wild, like... So YouTube radicalization is real and incredibly important. I would score that a nine. The notion that algorithms are racist, um, a zero. Because even though for me, it feels like... That feels like just a fact that we should all know and incredibly important and urgently significant, it is so, so, so far from being on people's minds and in the public consciousness to a level where it might create political impact. And I've been doing some work recently which has sort of involved me um, like getting out and about and spending a lot of time in citizens' advice bureaus and in community law centres and talking to people about this very thing. And I had a conversation with someone um, who who really got it and they were really smart and they really kind of were listening. And I explained to them about the way that um, data could be used to generate um, a scoring system on, on say, so that you might score someone uh, on how likely they were to be um, long-term missing. This is something that happens. Or um, how likely they were to re-offend or something that happens in the UK. And they, they listened really carefully and they said, no, I, I don't think it'll be anyone here because they don't use the internet. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. My explanation didn't include the fact that you don't need to use the internet for someone to have loads of data on you. That council data, your life data, but they they just thought there's something that happened online, and that's what I mean. I just think you know. So so to go from there to biased algorithms is is miles away. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
Let's go with the use of drones by nefarious actors. Um, oh, tricky. I think... Oh, God, I don't want to give this a high score. <laughs> I think eight. I'm sorry. Since so covering that Gatwick drone thing, I just spoke to a lot of drone experts and they told me so many terrible, horrible stories about things that are currently happening in places like Syria and Yemen. And it made me really pessimistic and worried about all this. So sorry, I think it will be important. Let's move on quickly because uh, things got gloomy here in the kitchen. Uh, the hacking of significant public infrastructure. Six. Not because I, I think that um, if it happened, it wouldn't be incredibly important, but because I'm, I wonder about its likelihood. Does that make sense? So I've, I've, as in, if it happens, 10. If it doesn't happen, then actually two, because I think that, again, the, the sort of real understanding about hacks and what they mean... I, in a way, I don't understand. What, do, what, do the fact that everything, what does the fact that everything gets hacked mean politically? It, it feels like, oh, we'll, the, the answer that you get from security services is that it means that we're all on the front line now and everyone needs to have better cybersecurity training, which seems to mean that we need stronger passwords. And that doesn't feel like a politically potent fact. But if there is a hack and if it is by a major nation state, well, that would be, that would be incredibly significant because it would take things onto a geopolitical level and I feel like there is this there is this sort of mounting sense of conflict around that which is yeah quite concerning really presumably the the China Huawei story the kind of idea that it seems to me reading between the lines that China is putting itself in a position where it can glean as much information that could put it an advantage at an advantage um, all over the world. And that's perhaps that shouldn't really be a surprise. But when bits of UK infrastructure are potentially going to be under the control of Chinese companies who are by extension under the control of the Chinese government, that feels like a kind of whole new ball game from a trying to protect your own uh, intellectual property in the British Isles. Yeah, it does. On the other hand, what have Huawei done? What crime have they committed? What's changed recently? What's changed is the political climate. This is part of, of Trump's trade war, really. And, and more generally, the, the statements that people like the FBI and the, the US State Department give on this, they're, they're incredibly clear in a way that, that our government isn't. They say China wants to become an economic superpower and we cannot let that happen. In, in a sense, it's already happened. But, I mean, to give him his due, China's hurting a lot more from this, this trade war than, than the US. So... I feel like the, the, the measures that America is taking have been very effective. And essentially, when you see someone like Germany or France, both two countries which are apparently looking at banning Huawei from their 5G networks, when, when they do that, that's pressure from the US. The message has gone out there. And yeah, maybe from a theoretical point of view, it, it does make sense. But my, my concern about this, which may be not very useful if you're on the ground and making decisions about this, but my concern is that there's something about this kind of um, rising sense of conflict and this sort of weaponization of every aspect of life and the fact that we're in this sort of cyber, this cyber conflict. War isn't declared on the basis of anything. It's just grinds constantly on, on the basis of hypotheticals. I find that a, a worrying way of dealing with the situation. And I'm concerned that, that we're getting sucked into this this narrative because ultimately I mean you know the the world we want to get to is a world of mutual interdependence where we can work with each other and that is going to involve China and that is going to involve Chinese tech so just banning them right now at this stage I mean well I don't know 
maybe it makes sense. Although the former director of GCHQ, uh, Robert Hannigan, he says he thinks it's ridiculous. I mean, but then yeah, again, this, this this is another difficulty is that as a journalist, it's very frustrating because it often comes down to the secret papers that we can't see. That that often feels like what you're being told. So anyway, I'm, I, I don't know. I, I resist this narrative because I feel like it has political motives behind it, and I don't like the way we're we're getting sucked into it. Last one, and I know it might be for you a hope as much as an expectation. Uh, the further demise of Facebook. The further demise of Facebook. Um, so. There's going to be loads of stories about Facebook and there's going to be an ongoing sense of, of crisis about them. But, I mean, demise, three, because it's not going to happen. However, I did used to say that Mark Zuckerberg would never, ever come close to being ousted as CEO of Facebook. And now I feel like it could be a possibility. Although it was interesting, I was at, um, I was at this thing with Martin... Do you see this thing, Martin Lewis versus Facebook, how he sort of got Facebook to um, combat scam ads and give three million to citizens advice. And that was really weird because normally, basically normally the, the relationship the, the, that you have with Facebook is quite confrontational. They, they don't like to admit they're wrong. And instead they held a whole big press conference to basically say that, they, that they'd got this wrong in the past and they were really pleased to announce they were doing something. So you can really see that in 2019, they've decided to turn a page and own the narrative. And I suppose to a, to a certain extent, they managed to, to do that with that story. Although, I don't know, I mean, they're such a terrible company in terms of the things, the things that, they, that they do that it's hard to see how they can, they can escape getting into more and more trouble this year, just like last year. If you want to know more about Roland's views on Facebook, do look up his open letter to Mark Zuckerberg, which you can find on the Wired website. Um, I'm conscious we didn't hit many 10s there, so I'm going to ask you in a moment uh, what you feel like might be a 10 for 2019. But before you do, some of those issues uh, which we talked about just there are covered in other episodes of Government versus the Robots. Um, so we do have an episode called Pizza Flying Pizza Deliveries, which feels a little bit benign, um, talking about the potential use and misuse of drones in the future. We've talked about uh, data and algorithms on several episodes with Jamie Bartlett. We've talked about virtual reality and fakes on the, the episode Real Reality. And we've talked about the news ecosystem last week on democracy hacked uh, but we've also talked about it uh, on an episode called fake news and all that jazz so uh, if you've not managed to listen to all of those back episodes please do have a wheel through follow up any of those issues in more depth um roland what are your 10 out of 10s for 2019 in terms of things that you think you're almost certainly going to be reporting on that are going to be the big stories of the next year i think that 2019 is going to be the year that government start to take action on tech because actually if you think about it there's been a lot of noise, but what's really happened? What laws have been passed? What laws have been changed? There's been one, essentially, GDPR. And that, in its sort of incoherent, bureaucratic, difficult way, has already had a really big effect. But 2019 is going to be the year when actually governments do things. So, so, the, so in the UK, the government's working on a, a white paper about regulating content online. And that's going to be big and important also, it's not like the, the state is a, a useful, benevolent actor necessarily. I'm, I'm just thinking it's, it's possible they might completely screw it up as, as get it right. But you'll start seeing kind of greater, greater intervention. And I think it's going to happen right across the world. And so in a sense, we're starting to see this, this sort of this conflict rising between the state and big tech, which in its own way has been taking over aspects of the state for some time. And that is, that, that's the real conflict that I think will shape what's going to happen in the future. And we'll look back at this and think, huh, yeah, 
well, they probably will think, well, they really did get that wrong at first. Or maybe they'll think that was incredibly smart regulation and action needs to be taken, and it was. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, this, this is what I'm really interested to see. But I think that whatever happens, it's going to cause a lot of conflict, and ultimately that will matter for politics and matter for, for journalists like me. And we're recording this episode on a day that it's been announced that Sky News is going to record everything that happens in its newsroom for a 20, I think, 24-hour period. Um, and that got me thinking while you were on your way over here about the nature of surveillance and transparency, because this is a big exercise in transparency from Sky's point of view. But for all of the stuff, it will also they will also feel a sense of surveillance. And I know that with the growth of tech, there are greater and greater opportunities for surveillance, whether that's the big data hoovering exercises that Google Google and Facebook and others are doing on a day-to-day basis and people might question the the purpose of the 10-year challenge meme um, and everybody sharing their faces 10 years later all over social media and who that benefits but um I read a book, Jonathan Franson novel called Purity a couple of years ago in which a politician has to wear a camera on their head 24-7 in in order to be able to show that she was exercising absolute transparency at all times. And it feels to me like some people want more transparency, but to deliver more transparency increasingly through modern tech, you also allow for more surveillance. And I just wonder if you feel like the relationship between surveillance and tech, so surveillance and transparency is something that kind of we need to keep an eye on. That's a really good question, which requires... Uh, you, could, you could do a whole podcast just on that. I think that what you need to unpack a little bit the, this relationship between surveillance and transparency because I think what crucially matters is who is doing the surveillance, who the surveillance is for, and likewise with the transparency, who does it serve? Those are the, the political questions about those, those practices. And so with the, with, the, with, the, with the Sky thing, so it's, it's for Sky's 30th anniversary, which is on the, the 5th of February. And yeah, I, I don't know how it's going to be. Maybe it'll be terrible. <laughs> Maybe it'll be really embarrassing. Maybe a bit boring. I don't know. But, but definitely I feel like, I personally feel that journalists don't really do a very good job at explaining what they do to people in the world. I mean, journalists are always going on about the media. And obviously because we publish a lot and put a lot out there we think that people understand what we do they, they don't i bet no i bet people have no idea what a source is and also i bet like, even you know how often that for me like the balance i'm often trying to strike is the stuff that i do publish versus stuff i don't publish like i know so much more than i can publish and that is kind of that's quite key to responsible journalism and that's sort of that's what you learn you know there's a whole there's a whole craft around it so so yeah basically i quite like the idea because also i'm just you know i'm up for, a, up for a try of anything. There were large questions about surveillance and transparency because I think that there is a, a middle point which, which we can ar- arrive at in that we're not necessarily stuck in this, this kind of this binary where if we let out information, then it's going to be used against us. And the way I think about it is this is, is, through, is through data and the open data movement, which I'm still really 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 believe in and i wish that more people didn't more people understand the importance of it and just to give one example mapping data in the uk is not open it's owned initially by the the ons so the detailed maps of britain which actually are really useful and really important and totally central to all sorts of services both public services like for example ambulances getting around uh, and also commercial services you know it's what tech People will call like a sort of, you know, like a platform, I guess, or like a layer in the stack or something. Yeah, so mapping data isn't open. The ONS decided to charge for it. And as a result, Google and Apple came along 
and made their own maps and then gave those free to people and then monetized them. So basically, what I'm saying is that there's a commercialized version of this, of this data which does constitute surveillance. And then there's an open version in which the data, which is our public rights and our public inheritance, belongs to all of us. And yes, if use of that data to show people where to go, to sort of make all sorts of products that, that, you know, that might help us and do different things, yeah, it probably it would constitute some kind of what we might think of as surveillance. But it all depends whether that surveillance is, is accountable, whether it can be revoked, whether it can be challenged, whether we can sort of take ownership of it, and whether, yeah, whether ultimately, I guess, it's, it's public or private. And I, I'm not sure I've explained that very well, but, but that, I guess, is sort of that's the difference between... It's different, but you know, between say like the journalism in the public interest, which is what we do and what we what we try and do, and just sh- shouting gossip about people, and also between between the way that it's possible to know things about people, and for that to be okay, and for that not to become part of a surveillance capitalism model, which ends up exploiting people, also not providing the services for everyone on a neutral basis. And my last question, because we've had a couple of dark moments, not least considering the future use of drones. Um, and for people who can't watch, we're sort of sat in semi-lights because the lights in this part of my kitchen aren't working, so it's a bit dark here anyway. Um, but my last question to try and bring more light into the future aspects of the year ahead for all of us is to ask you what have been the best examples of tech being used for social good that you've come across since you took on your Skybeat? Oh, uh, yeah, well, what, a, what a good question. I haven't actually... I can't think of that many stuff that I've come across on my, on my Skybeat and, and genuinely, I do find it really, really hard to think of examples because somehow when you dig into everything, yeah, you end up finding out that, that there's a that there's a sort of dark undercurrent, especially in the way that the, the service might use your data or something like that. But the last thing I did before I left Wired was I went out to, um, to Ukraine to write a big feature about a procurement system called Prozoro. Uh, so Prozoro is like the most... Um, it's, it's amazing. It's the most transparent procurement system in the world. And that sounds like really, really boring. But procurement is everything. Like procurement is where the, all the money is. You know, this, so, so, the, so the British government spends like, I think a third of all public spending is, on, is on, spent on with, public, with private companies. That's procurement. And we literally, in the UK, we don't know where it goes. So it's a constant source of stories for journalists. They dig out some quote-unquote secret contracts that the government has, uh, has done, you know, especially around Brexit. There's so many of those stories about secret contracts. Procurement data should be public data. And if it was public data, it's not just that we'd know about it, but you could have, all, you can have some kind, certain kinds of automation. You could have sort of certain like, regulatory systems that will run automatically. And also, is that then what you find is that once you've got genuine data, open data about things, is that you don't always have to give every massive contract to IBM or Accenture because actually SMEs, you know, startups, can get government contracts. And I, yeah, all the, I mean, I'm such, a, I'm such a nerd about this stuff. But that, seeing Prozoro in the flesh, in one of the most corrupt countries in the world, a place that is almost like barely a functioning state, and meeting the people who've built it and seeing what they've done, it was so sort of, yeah, it was so inspirational. And it really made me just, yeah, incredibly passionate about, wishing that we could have something like that in this country and thinking yeah you know this is something that i want to tell people about try and get people excited about procurement or maybe yeah i don't know one day one day
Well, there's one very tangible example, which is the Seaborne Freight Company that everybody, that uh, the big Brexit contract for the ferries going out of Ramsgate, which is a procurement, and it's actually worthy of procurement corruption stories in various states around the world that we don't usually associate those sorts of stories with Britain. But that one doesn't look great on the tin, let's put it that way. Um, Ronan, thank you very much for joining me here in my kitchen in Peckham. It's great to do the first ever South London episode of Government versus the Robots. It's been great to have you here. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week. My thanks to Sky Redman, as ever, for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do tell your friends all about it. Send a few emails and follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S robots. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.